you're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down, audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. On the show this week is my friend Nermal Metha of AWS. He's a principal specialist solution architect and a Docker captain and somewhat of a regular on this show. So you may have heard him before. Typically, every time he's here, though, we have a different topic. He's just like me, all over the board, all the DevOps things, all the container things. This time, we're diving into Kubernetes auto-scaling with Carpenter. That's Carpenter with a K, of course. It's Kubernetes, got to put a K in it. It's an open source project that AWS released in 2021, and we had tons of questions in chat about it, how it works, and how Kubernetes auto-scaling in general works. Auto-scaling, particularly for Kubernetes, is one of those projects that you might not realize how complex it can get when you first start and how you'll likely end up with multiple tools to solve your overall spectrum of auto-scaling concerns. So we get into all that and where Carpenter can help or even complement your existing setup. As usual, we have a few demos in the YouTube live show. So if you're interested in seeing Carpenter in action, check out the links in the show notes attached to this episode or on the podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. So thanks for listening. And here's my chat with Nermal Metha of AWS. Hello, I am Brett. Let's get to it. Nermal Metha, what's up? What's up? How's it going, Brett? Thanks for having me on your show. I'm Nermal. I'm a principal specialist solution architect at AWS, and it's great to be back here. It's been a little while. It's been and a, a Docker minute. captain. And a Docker captain. And a good friend, and a Patreon supporter of you, and a high fiver, and a East Coaster, East Coast, and a, yep, <laughs> Mid Atlanticer, Mid Atlantic. <laughs> We're hours apart, but we never see each other. We have to go to other cities that, to right? conferences to actually hang out. It's, I know it's weird. <laughs> I don't think I've ever hung out with you in the actual states that we are in. I've only that's true hung out with you in different time zones. We did do one in DC. We did a DC thing. Docker used to oh, have a security a yeah. government thing in DC, and we have pictures in DC, which is technically not a state, but you know, it's right next to Virginia. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, we're gonna be silly this hour because we just like to have fun. But yeah, Nermo's here to show off some tools, and let's talk about your jobs. So you haven't always been at AWS. Correct. And <laughs> and we were just talking before the show, you basically get to help customers adopt Kubernetes on AWS. Yeah, Is that right? Yeah. So changed jobs last year. So now I'm at AWS and I'm helping support the EKS team. So I'm a principal specialist solution architect in our containers team and focused on helping customers adopt Kubernetes and EKS and all things containers and helping them solve amazing problems on large scale infrastructure. And I'm super excited to be on your show today to talk about an open source project that AWS uh, founded and spearheaded called Carpenter today. I'm here to talk about Kubernetes cluster scaling, auto scaling. Yes. And that's a topic, I think we were talking a couple of days ago, how this topic is kind of folks that are using Kubernetes, they might not be hitting like the auto scaling or the cluster scaling kind of issue yet, but if you're in that stage, you need to be aware of what options are out there to automatically scale out the, the cluster and the nodes that are supporting your Kubernetes cluster. And one of those options is called Carpenter, and that's what we'll be talking about today. But that's not necessarily something that is, you know, if it's your first day running Kubernetes, you're kicking the tires on it, you're probably not thinking about that just yet. But this will be a good show for you to reference later on on your Kubernetes journey once you hit to some of those scaling issues to think about. And then if you are running like an EKS cluster or um, multiple clusters and you're starting to utilize a lot of your resources and you wanna improve your operations of that cluster and start to scale it out, 
this is super relevant for for that group as well. So it, we're, I'm kind of trying to address two different groups of Kubernetes users right now, like the early stage where you want to keep this in, in mind, and then folks that are potentially about to hit some of the the scale, the operations of scaling out and ma maintaining your cluster and, and making sure the right compute resources are there for the workloads that you're trying to run. Yeah, and even before we say that real quick, for those that are new to auto-scaling, it'll be good for us to talk about there are many yeah. types of auto-scaling, like you're saying, and yep. and what we're going to focus on today is a particular type of auto-scaling. But if you're someone who's trying to be completely agile in all your infrastructure and you're super mature in your Kubernetes evolution and all that, you probably are going to end up with at least two different types of auto-scaling at the same time because there's a lot of complexity and a lot of so, well, there's a lot of problems that you have to solve with auto-scaling, not just, I have a tool that does, all, does it all. And th that's a great, like it deserves a bunch of course videos, you know, on different types of auto-scaling and the pros and cons of each. And the fact that they aren't all competitors to each other, a lot of times it's additive, the different levels of horizontal and vertical and node and pod. And it just, it gets to be a lot. We need to define the problem that we're trying to solve in this particular case, not a all auto scaling in all of the universe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm going to start off talking about what we're not talking about, what Carpenter is not addressing. There's generally two or three different types of scaling in the Kubernetes world, right? So the first two are what you might see on out there if you're starting your Kubernetes journey is horizontal pod auto scaling and vertical pod auto scaling. And this is scaling the actual containers, the pods, right? So horizontal pod auto scaling is just that it's, um, based on triggers and, and thresholds, you're going to create more pods to meet the demand and the load for that service. So you're going to deploy more pods in a horizontal fashion to load balance that load across the existing compute, the existing Kubernetes compute cluster nodes, right? Okay. And then there's another option, which is maybe instead of creating more pods, you adjust the resources that pod has and you vertically scale that. So maybe giving it more a CPU, more memory, more network resources, and you're creating a bigger pod and to meet the demand. So that's at the pod level. Those are scaling. That's auto scaling at the pod level. That's not what we're going to be talking about today. What we're going to be talking and addressing with Carpenter is what's called cluster auto scaling. So. The other part of scaling is actually creating additional compute nodes for those pods to live on and run on. So if you have a, let's say a two node EKS cluster, you have two EC2 instances that are available for running your pods and your workloads. And for some reason, you've maxed out the resources on those two EC2 instances, you want to automatically have another node EC2 instance spin up based on that threshold. And the traditional, the classic way right now to do that is using the Kubernetes cluster autoscaler, right? So Amazon has one, AWS has one. It's called the AWS cluster autoscaler. And what it does is it looks at the pending pod queue and it does a API request to the autoscaling group, right? So if you have a managed node group, you have an autoscaling group that's specific to that instance size and that launch template. And it's going to look at the limits, the min and max of that autoscaling group. And it's automatically going to provision a, another compute node up to that max of that instance type to meet that load. But it has to kind of go through the whole entire ASG process to do that, right? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Carpenter is a alternate to the cluster autoscaler. So I want to make sure that you know, we're very clear on the, there's two different types of scaling here. And what we're talking about is the cluster auto scaling today. Yeah. And that's a good, that's a question. Does this coexist or is this intended to be a cluster auto scaler replacement? And you're saying it is a replacement for cat. Yeah. So technically they can coexist, but you have to be careful about race conditions and make sure they're mutually exclusive. But for all intents and purposes for this conversation, it's a replacement. It's an alternate to the cluster auto scaler. Okay. Do you view it as a superset of the CAS functionality? No. No? It's an alternate. Okay. It's a different way of doing it. 
Okay. <laughs> so some of the issues right now with the, the cluster autoscaler is you're creating autoscaling groups and managers groups based on certain instance types. And that's going to, you know, that's bespoke to the types of workloads that you think are going to be running on that cluster. Well, if you have different types of workloads, then you have to make a decision on either spinning up a new cluster with different types of compute, creating a new managed node group that has specific resources that are tuned to that different type of workload. So say you have like web application workloads and then you have a machine learning GPU intensive workload. Right now with the the cluster autoscaler, that would be different, different managed node groups that would be different types of compute and they'd have different scaling characteristics and not necessarily being able to share resources really effectively there. And so as you're growing out your use of Kubernetes, you're going to have this kind of engineering decision or architectural decision on what types of compute do I want and how much of that compute do I want to match the workloads that I'm going to be running. And with cluster autoscaler, it's kind of granular right now, or not granular. It's, it's what I'd say, it's not one, one size fits all. You have to kind of make those trade-offs. So balancing the needs of those workloads and what the compute looks like, you're going to have some wasted compute there, right? So you, you might have to spin up a new cluster for specific type of workloads, and then you have to manage that cluster separately. So wouldn't it be better if you could have a cluster autoscaler that can match the workload or match the new node and scale up the compute layer to best match the workload that's coming down and what you want to run in the queue. So th this kind of heterogeneous workload creates issues around being able to respond with just the ASGs and, and the cluster autoscaler to these different types of workloads. And another thing is you have to go through the whole entire autoscaling group process to scale up those specific types of nodes, right? So that might take a, a while to do. You want to also be able to respond quickly to the different types of workloads that are coming down the pipe. So these are the issues that Carpenter was created to address, which is balancing utilization, making sure that there's the right type of compute for your workload at the right time in an efficient and, and cost-effective way, and making sure that is available when you need it. So Carpenter is an open source project that was released to be able to address these issues and make the promise of Kubernetes real for our Kubernetes customer base and for the EKS customer base. And that's around dynamic groupless node provisioning. So you're no longer stuck to a specific type of instance type and the autoscaling groups. You have automatically a way to choose the right node size and instance type based on the workloads that are in the pipe and to be able to not lose any of the performance to scale this up as quickly as possible. So I'm going to pause there. Do you have any questions around that, Brett? So you mentioned a good example would be like you have a cluster that's really all just CPU-based workloads, but then you need a special resource type like a GPU node. Right. And this is able to add those or to figure that out based on requirements that you put in your deployment, I guess. You're putting it in your deployment spec, and then it's able mm -hmm. to... Pick, knowing what's available, it's able to go pick a GPU node, add it to the cluster or whatever it needs. And it doesn't require any additional customization on the part of the like sysadmin, basically the, the Kubernetes cluster admin. Is that how it works? Yes. So there's so we'll get into how it works in just a second, but you're getting there. Yeah. So there's two main components to it. The Carpenter, it runs as a controller and you give it what's called a, there's a CRD called a provisioner. And the provisioner is the way that the operations team can specify to Carpenter what type of instances are allowed, are, are allowed to be approved for provisioned, use. Yeah, yeah. Approved yeah. for, for use or provisioned yeah. by the, by Carpenter, right? So by default, it's, you know, it takes the whole entire catalog of instance types that are available. It's both on-demand and spot type instances. So, you know, by default, it, it takes the whole entire catalog, but that might not be what's approved by right. your organization. So you can use that provisioner to limit the the types of instance instances or types of compute that you want Carpenter to provision. And then the other piece to it is 
uh, Carpenter takes a look at a lot of different inputs that are in your pod definition or your deployment definition, such as the taints and tolerations, labels, the memory and CPU needs, and all the other kind of aspects of pod scheduling to best match a batch of pods in the unschedulable queue to a resource that's available from the catalog of instance types and then matches those up at best it's the best it can and then provisions that as fast as possible to meet that pod. So those are the two kind of components. So it uses the provisioner as the rules for what types of instances to provision. And then it takes a look at the, the resources that are defined and matches that up as fast as possible and okay. in a cost-effective manner. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and the more I got into it with you the other day when we were talking about it, the more I was interested in it because it does seem to try to capture a lot of the a lot of the problems that aren't maybe obvious on day one of I want to do auto scaling of nodes. And then you find out eventually you're like, oh, I need, you know, I need right sizing essentially. And I need some of these other things that are maybe there might be a tool or something out there that already does it, but it's an additional tool. So now you're adding all these other things. So we have some questions I'm going to, I'm going to ask real quick of you. Is it designed to work with AWS only? I think that's probably going to be the number one question. Yeah, so today. it's designed to be flexible to work with other per cloud providers, but right now AWS is the is has been implemented. So right. it's PRs are welcome, and I'll you know I'll share the links to the GitHub project. But uh, PRs are welcome, but right now it's open for all cloud providers. But AWS is is the only one implemented. I was gonna say. I was gonna say it's a pretty great GitHub URL. It's GitHub AWS Carpenter. Like it's yes. not some uh, really long, you know, yeah. Kubernetes dash auto scaling dash Carpenter under AWS dash public. Yeah, it's nice, short, easy URL for everyone to remember. And it's a very active community. There's a lot of participation there, and there's a lot of new features that are coming out. It's an awesome project and an awesome community. So if you like to nerd out on cluster scaling and node provisioning and, and deep provisioning, feel free to start getting involved in that community. So, so thank you for that. The next question, can we auto scale control plane nodes? Carpenter is focused mostly on the data plane and the compute nodes right now. So it's not geared toward the control plane nodes. And I don't know why you would auto scale maybe vertically but so in my opinion auto scaling control plane yes. nodes doesn't give you more capacity like if, you, if things are slow in the api you have to do some research to find out if it's is it a database issue do you need to scale the database node like yeah so yeah so scaling out control plane and creating a highly available production ready performant control plane is not easy it's the whole entire reason the eks exists to handle yeah. that and if you there is an awesome talk from this past reInvent on deep diving into how EKS works behind the hood. And you can see all the things that AWS does to make sure that the control plane is performant and highly available. So if, if you are interested in that, I can definitely post the link to that a little bit later, but that's a whole nother world and a whole nother yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. So it's not a bad one. Absolutely it's not. simply a question of... Like, so first off, you're not, if you're on EKS, you shouldn't have to worry about this, right? Like you have a toggle, you're not implementing control plane yourself manually. And even if you were, That's you may not even be using container-based control planes. Like you might have the binaries mm -hmm. running on the host natively. So it gets kind of weird and it's, I, yeah. So it, I can see how that, and again, like, yeah, it, I think the, the people, the reason people need to scale control plane nodes is usually because they, they got too many pods now and they need more resources for the control plane resource. So that's like a vertical scale yeah. to me, not a... And there's also like the perform... Yeah, let's put a pin in that because yeah. that's a great conversation for another yeah. show for sure. But contr Kubernetes control plane scaling and performance is like a whole beast onto itself. <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. so Carpenter, this conversation is not geared toward the control plane scaling. Got it. All right. I just want to make sure, because we, I, I think we, we had a quick conversation about this too, about there's two different types of scheduling happening and how the interplay between those are, what the interplay between those two scheduling systems. So what Carpenter addresses here is scaling the, the cluster nodes, the compute layer 
it's not the scheduling decision necessarily. There's an interplay here, but it's not the scheduling decision that Kubernetes does for figuring out where pods are going to be, right? So if there's enough resources in your existing cluster, in your existing capacity, then the pending pods are going to be scheduled to those resources by Kubernetes, right? By the Kubernetes pod scheduler. Good to go. Right. It's once you hit the limits of that capacity, then the Kubernetes scheduler is going to transform those pending pods into what's called unschedulable pods, right? And if you've run Kubernetes for any amount of time in a non-cluster autoscale way, you're going to hit this issue at some point where you've got too many pods running and that next, that N plus one pod, you know, that you want to run is going to come back as unschedulable, right? And what that means is there's not enough capacity. Kubernetes can't find a node that after filtering and scoring the the nodes, it's it's can't find a node to put that pod onto, to assign to that pod. So this queue of unscheduled pods is where Carpenter comes in. It takes a look at that queue of unscheduled pods and it batches up a certain amount of them. And it looks at the resources, the taints, the tolerations, the labels for that batch of pods. And it does a API call to, for the AWS provider, it does an API call to the EC2 fleet API, which sends back a list of instance types that best match the resources that Carpenter determined for that batch of unscheduled pods. Carpenter then selects one of the instances from that and starts to provision it. And that provisioned instance type and that provisioned compute node is going to be the best. It's going to be right-sized to that set of pods that it needs to schedule. And that's the magic here, right? That's the awesomeness here. So you get an automated instance selection and provisioning of a instance type that best matches the unschedulable pods. And then it'll, it assigns those pods to that node. And once that node comes up, those pods will get scheduled on there. So there's no auto scaling group involved. It's batch by batch determined what instance is required. So, you know, if you have this one pod in the unscheduled pod queue that needs a GPU and it needs X amount of CPU and memory, it's going to go hit the fleet API. It's going to come back with, you know, certain instance types. It's going to pick that provision that node, boom, that pod gets put on there. And then the next unscheduled pod or next 10 unscheduled pods, maybe it's total memory and CPU is, you know, let's say eight gigs and two virtual CPUs. So you only need a really small instance. So the next instance that Carpenter is going to provision might be like a large instance or an extra large instance for just those pods. So it's going to be a heterogeneous mix of instance types that best match the puzzle pieces of pods that are unschedulable. And you're no longer trying to roughly fit one type of instance type like you do in the cluster autoscaler up to a certain limit. You can mix and match the instance types and you get the right instance type for that workload. It's pretty sweet. Got it. The questions are coming in fast and furious. Does Carpenter also scale down? Yes. Carpenter puts a TTL, allows you to put a TTL and by default, there's a TTL, time to live on each of the nodes that it provisions. So by default, I think it's 30 seconds. It, it could be even uh, lower than that. But what that means is Carpenter is constantly checking whether there's actually pods on a node. And so outside of the daemon sets and like your backend service pods that are getting scheduled on every, that are on every single node in your cluster, if there's no actual workload pods on that node anymore, after 30 seconds or whatever the TTL is, Carpenter is going to go ahead and cordon off that node and flush it and, and destroy it. So one of the big, you know, one of the tricky things with Kubernetes and scaling in general is it's really easy to start provisioning nodes, but it might be hard to like prune them or do some kind of garbage collection. So Carpenter does that. The other thing that you can do is you can also put an expiration on a node. And so that means that you can say like a node is only supposed to live seven days. And Carpenter will, after seven days, destroy that node, regardless if there's, you know, even if there's workloads on there, it's going to cordon it off and destroy it. So you can also make sure that your environment is very fresh, right? Or you can kind of do, make sure that the 
your instances are constantly being recycled or refreshed to for patching or for other operations and maintenance kind of work, work that you need to do. So it's really awesome. And yes, scaling down and and making sure that the, the cluster is exactly what is needed is part of the carpenter design. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask two more questions, then we're going to get back to it. Is EKS with Carpenter plus spot instances, can it replace spot inst ocean for EKS for cost optimization? I don't know about so spot. I'm not familiar with spot ocean, but uh, yeah, Carpenter does support spot instance types. And it also does a smart amount of understanding of what the demand. So it, when it does the spot API call, it's looking at data on which instance types are least in demand so that it's by default going to find a spot instance that has the l least amount of potential interruption. Right. It'll hang around. So longer. <laughs> it'll hopefully potentially, yeah. you know, there's no guarantees yeah. there, but like right. it's trying to give you the best, like the cost, the most cost effective, least interruption spot instance in that region right. or how you have it configured, which is really awesome. And last question. So, Carpenter doesn't make use of AWS auto scaling groups, let's say, just an API call to launch instances. That's correct. All right. There was a question around like installation and usage. So, installation, there's a Helm chart. You can do it just through, there's basically just a controller that needs to run somewhere on a node in your cluster. And then the main thing that the main CRD that controls it, like I mentioned, is a provisioner. And that is the way you specify what types of nodes you want to provision. You want want Carpenter provisions. So that's one way to control it. But there's, I don't have enough time to go over all the permutations of a provisioner. There's documentation on all the options, but it's a very flexible platform or very flexible configuration of provisioners. And you can get very fine grain or you can just go with the defaults and it, it kind of does the best practices by default. So. You can have multiple provisioners that are the best practices to be mutually exclusive, but you could have different provisioners, maybe for different teams of folks that are using that same cluster, maybe different types of workloads that can be very prescriptive to what those teams want or need or the budgets or, or the, the performance profiles. So it's very flexible in, in that respect. Real quick. So when we were talking about this the other day, you made a good point because I was getting confused around how it affects scheduling you know and the default kubernetes scheduler and you reminded me that it doesn't it doesn't actually change the scheduler and so it's a great point to reiterate again like you were describing it only affects unschedulable pods or it only acts in the case of new pods that need to be scheduled if they get unscheduled because i think that's a good distinction that i was a little bit confused about at first around how when this thing acts and when it doesn't and it's not replacing the scheduler, right? It's still the default Kubernetes scheduler. Yeah, there's an interplay, right? So the interplay there is the, the Kubernetes scheduler is going to look at pending pods and look at the resources and try to fit those pods into the existing resources. If you had a cluster and you don't have cluster autoscaler and you don't have Carpenter there, Kubernetes is not going to magically know how to talk to AWS right. like EC2 and like spin up a new node for you or some other infrastructure provisioner, you have to use some kind of controller like cluster autoscaler or carpenter to scale out the underlying infrastructure. The, the only thing that Kubernetes scheduler is going to do is if it can't find a space for that pod, it's going to label it as unschedulable. And th that's where carpenter comes in. It looks at the unschedulable pod queue as its main input. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from, we do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features, and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio-only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube Live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now going to jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. Now, in this case of scaling down, is it actually telling the scheduler to essentially reschedule a pod or is it waiting until it's true zero pods on that node? Yeah. So for the TTL, it's when there's no workload pods running except for the daemon sets, right? Those are always going to be running. So out excluding the daemon set pods, 
if I just deleted those spot pods, those started to be removed from the cluster. And when there was a node with nothing else except for the daemon sets running on there, then Carpenter's going to start the TTL, the 30-second timer. The other thing that you can configure in, in Carpenter is you can provision a expiration time for a node. So that's a separate timer where it's counting, it's timing how long the node has been running. So, you know, hours, days, whatever it is. And I could set a, say like an expiration of seven days. And then regardless of the workloads that are running on there, it's going to remove that node. So it's going to drain and then it, right? It's yeah, going to drain right. it. So that also means that it's probably going to, it's going to provision a new node. So if you want to make sure that your nodes are fresh with the latest security patches or latest AMI, or, you know, for some other reason, you want to keep your infrastructure, uh, your compute layer fresh, you can put expirations on your node too. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Cause I love to point out you know, easy security features of things because we all are struggling to keep up with security right. patches and all that. And we are, in this case, we're not talking about, we are still managing these nodes, right? So like if you're using EKS and you're not using Fargate, right? You're still responsible for the nodes they're patching and whatnot. So this is a, this is a kind of one of those things, like even if I didn't think I was going to be putting a new bunch of new workloads on, or I needed to auto scale my pods, just the refreshing of nodes ability of this is yeah. something that I would do every time. Yeah, and going back to the beginning of the discussion, one of the promises of Kubernetes and is to be able to take on whatever workloads are, are coming in, right? So, right. you know, one thing that Carpenter addresses is it, before this, you'd have to make architectural decisions like, do I want, do I need to spin up a new cluster for that new team that's doing something different than what the what this existing, like if I have a cluster that's optimized for a specific type of workload, let's say Java web apps or something like that. And then this new team gets stood up that's doing like, I don't know, data, anal Sorry. data analytics. <laughs> it was a really great comment you made. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> for data analytics, apparently you really like data analytics. There we go. Then you might have to, as your operations team or the people, your SREs, you might have to make a decision. Do I spin up a separate cluster for that team? Do I need to reconfigure the instance types I have on my existing cluster? How do I adapt to these two different workloads? I have different performance characteristics and needs. So Carpenter, you know, one of the promises of Kubernetes is that you should be able to throw at it all these different types of workloads and it becomes this system that can automatically adapt to that. But, you know, it doesn't right now. It's getting better. Carpenter allows you to get to more of that state. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. It, it, it starts to get closer to that promise. It allows you to not have to make that decision at a cluster level anymore and trying to figure out if you have to do kind of over resource provisioning for different types of workloads. Right. So if you're interested yeah. in, in learning more and, and getting this set up in your environment, go to carpenter.sh. And if you are interested in getting involved in the open source community, helping make it make Carpenter better, testing it out, writing docs, running examples. PRs are welcome. It's a great community. Come join the fun. There's a Carpenter channel on the Kubernetes Slack, the, the CNCF Slack team, I guess you could say, the Slack environment. So come join the discussion there. One of the goals for 2022 is to reach 15 seconds for the first pod provisioning time. So if the first unscheduled pod, getting that up and running on a new node within 15 seconds. It's not quite there yet, but that's one of the goal. And to be able to do a thousand nodes within, this is all in the roadmap. Yeah, so 1000 pods within 30 seconds, P90 is another goal for 2022, which is, you know, that should awesome. cover like a good amount of use cases, <laughs> right. I would say. So yeah, Faster go than check I can it get out. A refill in my coffee. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, feel free to hit me up. I'm at normal faults on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you have any questions, you know, hit me up and I can help answer them. And yeah, thank you for letting me show off Carpenter today. So yeah. we'll, let's go into some questions. I've got at least 10 questions in the queue. So all right, I'll try my we're going to try to make this quick. Can this be instructed to use the most cost-effective instances in both spot and on-demand modes? What about spot termination notices? So technically two questions. So the first one is, can it be used the most cost-effective instances in spot and on-demand? 
Yeah, it's going to try to do that with the fleet API. So by default, the provisioner, the AWS provisioner allows for spot and on-demand instance types. And spot obviously has cost savings there. It's going to try to find the spot instances that have the least amount of demand so that highest likelihood, <laughs> let me make sure I phrase this right, the highest likelihood of not being interrupted, which is the risk with spot instances, right? That's the trade-off yeah. there. So yes. And also the right sizing, right? So there's some other, I would encourage you to look at the Carpenter documentation and the details and what you can define in the provisioner. You can also define like CPU and memory limits, like max for a provisioner. So, you know, I don't want to ever provision more than, I don't know, a terabyte of RAM or something like that right. ever. And you can define, and that's a way you can like also limit cost or make sure that you're within what you're comfortable to, to actually provision and pay for. Okay. How do instances spin up through Carpenter get tied back to infrastructure as code so that they're automatically destroyed? All right. So this is the trade-off between declaring your infrastructure and the automation of your infrastructure, right? So both Cluster Autoscaler and Carpenter are automatically provisioning instances for you. They're not writing a Terraform right. plan and then applying it to your right. cluster. The infrastructure's code is the provisioner YAML definition that you can store in like GitOps or Helm charts or whatever your infrastructure's code right. mechanism is. Like the controller for Carpenter running and the CRD provisioners that you are providing for that cluster would be stored in your infrastructure's code, but your nodes aren't going to auto magically be as, you know, configured, um, right. unless you're telling Carpenter to use like an AMI that has like a specific launch template and has your infrastructure's code stuff to do that, to, you know, well, and that's into good, that system. Right. That's a good <laughs> point. So like a lot of these tools. There's a lot of tools out there that will help create infrastructure automatically based on load or all other sorts of requirements. And historically, those things don't write back to your infrastructure's code to update them. Now that we're starting to see these GitOps tools, they're able sometimes to do that stuff. But I yeah. would argue that in this case, what we're saying is we are defining, like you're saying, we're defining this infrastructure's code as a Kubernetes resource, the parameters. And those parameters never get changed. Like they don't need to be updated because we're not saying three nodes and then not document. We're documenting all of those things in, in the specification for the resource type, whatever it is. What is this a uh, schedule carpenter or something? I saw like an alpha five something in one of your slides. But so the point there is that's how you define it. And then you're, what you're basically saying is I no longer care how many exact nodes that carpenter is managing, like the node count. I don't need to update my IOC because my node count changed. And yeah. so I still think of this as declarative infrastructure, even though the number of nodes is different, possibly at every given moment. And that's to me, the way that one of these many ways that we're seeing infrastructure becoming less like the OS, the number of nodes, the number of OSs is becoming less and less important as we automate and provide this is, to me, this is an abstraction on top of infrastructure management, right? So we're no longer having to change a template, deploy three more nodes, manually update, do a PR request to, to deploy three more nodes. This is doing all that per parameters, which I love. To me, this is how Kubernetes should always be. <laughs> and we could always just hard set it. And there's a question on this, which this is leading me to the next question for you. Do you see Carpenter or the features of it being pushed upstream into Kubernetes? Basically Kubernetes upstream. And reply was, that's intentionally always been left out at, at, because we don't want to keep bundling more and more advanced uh, sort of opinionated functionality into the vanilla upstream Kubernetes. Correct. And that's like, we saw, we've done that before, right? We all did that with uh, CSIs and now we're moving out those storage drivers mm -hmm. when they were embedded. That's yeah, that's a correct answer. And I say, I think the trend, the we're going the opposite direction right now. Like you just said, right now, the, provider specific implementation of certain APIs is, or features and functionality is starting to be removed from the Kubernetes upstream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause these things are not like right now, Carpenter is only AWS and you know, we need but more it, community involvement in order to support other clouds mm -hmm. or on-prem. That's one of the questions that keeps, I think it's getting asked several times is about on-prem. 
this only supports AWS right now, right? Like this is, it's not even a year old as it's, my memory it's, serves. Yeah, like it's, it's designed to be flexible. The current, the only provider in there right now is AWS, but PRs are welcome. I can't tell you what the future holds for it right. with respect to right. that. Exactly. I mean, it's open source. This community. is open source. This is open source. Yep. So we're, we're doing it out in the open. And I love yep. that AWS is starting this because we can all hope that it's going to be a successful project in terms of having more clusters or more cloud types, rather having an on-prem version for maybe VMware. I can see the on-prem getting pretty complicated in terms of the, uh, the plugin though, because now that's going to be very VM infrastructure API dependent, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so not, one day, one anyway. day there's going to be one day, you know, th this is jokingly, there's going to be some API that gets called and, you know, it's going to hit the hardware resellers and ship you like a new, you know, <laughs> surfer box or something. <laughs> I'm six weeks out from this pod being deployed because I need new hardware. No, all right. I'm, I'm going to keep going. So we can get through all these questions. Okay. Yeah. Does, does it not rebalance at all? Would it mean that if 24 times I only had one pod left, would it leave that expensive server up for just one pod? Yeah. So I think you asked me the same exact question <laughs> earlier this week, Brett. Well, this is that interplay between the Kubernetes scheduler and what Carpenter's doing. The question you're asking is, does the Kubernetes pod scheduler actively rebalance where pods are running based on what's going on? And by default, the answer to that question is likely no for you know, there's lots of different flavors of Kubernetes out there, but just in general, once that pod is scheduled and running happily on that node, the Kubernetes scheduler isn't going to touch it unless something happens. Right. This now, is like a that, do no harm default. It's like, right. if, if the pod is running, don't screw with it unless I have to. Right. Yeah. Now, this question is, gets to the heart of, I think, probably where Carpenter and some of the scheduling, like the interplay between these two schedulers is going to be interesting. There is a taint and toleration that you can put on a pod. So say you have an, a pod that's running and it's a small little pod, but it's on a big instance because all its neighbors are gone. You can put an, I think it's called no execute, like some specific label and no execute. And that will immediately, if that node doesn't have that tolerate, or if that node doesn't have that same taint, then Kubernetes is going to immediately remove that pod from that node. So there's a way to change the configuration of the pod that's already running your deployment to trigger an event for Kubernetes to, to do something to kind right. of rebalance. To basically um, reprovision the pod. And then it will probably make an, maybe it'll right. make a decision on. And there's other ways to do that, but removing a pod is going to be a destructive thing, right? Like if you right. have active sessions or it's like actively doing things, you're telling it to kill that pod and then reschedule it somewhere. There's no magic DRS for a pod. Right. There might be tools out there. I'm not going to say there isn't. Maybe so there's things that do that stuff so somewhere. Not, but yeah. There's, there, so what you're kind of, I'm going to paraphrase what you're saying here is you're saying that like we talked about the TTL on the nodes. We talked, you know, talked about the some certain taints and things that you can do. So there's not a feature built in that just says if there's only three, you know, if only 10% of resources are being used, reschedule the pods to a different node. Like that's not yeah. a feature in Carpenter today. There's Correct. capability in Kubernetes that maybe could allow for that feature, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. That capability with both trigger could potentially both trigger the pod scheduler and that then because of unscheduled pod queue can also then trigger the Carpenter scheduler. Yeah. Right? So. I think that if that was likely, I mean, here's my pro tip. Like, I don't even know. I've not implemented Carpenter yet, but to me, I would just be, if I thought that that was more likely, I would probably set your TTL really low, like a day or something. So that in that worst case, if we had to scale up really big and down a lot, then those big nodes would only run maximum of a day with like one pod. Cause you're saying if there's no pods, it, it might do something. If there is a pod, it won't do anything. But if the node's only going to last a day anyway, then Carpenter would just make a smaller server to replace it because there's only one pod. To yes. Make. That's unprovisioned. And, so, and this is exactly, that's exactly why that's an awesome feature. Yeah. 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 Don't let your instances live forever. It, it's also just a part that's of all probably, the declarative infrastructure we're looking, we're learning I mean, today is like the longer something lasts, the more likely it's drifted. So cor correct. Drift. And you're, you know, best practices you're likely going to have to patch things anyway, right? You're going to be upgrading yep. versions of things. You're going to get the next Kubernetes Kubelet patch new, version, whatever. Yeah. So it's probably best practice to do some cycling of your nodes anyway, right? 
this is kind of goes into a longer conversation around the fact that we all we want all of our applications that are running in Kubernetes to be able to be replaced at any time, which means, and this is something I preach about in my DockerCon talk this year and then three years ago in 2019, is that you need to really, before any of this can really happen, and you're talking about dynamic and up, spinning up, and more importantly, spinning down pods, when you're replacing them, when you're reducing the number of replicas, whatever it is, that means you have to be really good at your apps being able to handle switching pods, which means... You have to deal with load balancers and time to live on the factor. connections. Right, TCP. Like all these yep. things have to happen before you can auto-scale yep. Kubernetes down. Down is the hardest. And I find that most application developers, honestly, most, don't do that. They don't dig into how exactly the TCP connections to their app are treated during a deprovisioning event of a pod. I, I just want, I'm going to say that out loud because maybe you all, you all listening are amazing <laughs> developers. You probably are. But there's a lot of people I work with that they just kind of hand wave around it, even if it's HTTP, and they don't really think about the fact that, well, what if the user's uploading a video that, or your, an image to your platform that's 10 meg in size image, and they're uploading it over dial-up or whatever, or over mobile, yeah. and it's really slow, and you deprovision that that pod, you drain the node, and the pod just kills itself because it's been given an, uh, a SIGINT, and it just doesn't know how to hold on for connections. So this is very much an application developer problem as much as it is an infrastructure problem. People, it's not a problem until you realize you got customer complaints every time you do a rolling update of your pods and you're like, okay, maybe we need to manage, uh, we need to handle down, scaling down better. Anyway, sorry, soapbox moment for me because it's not always infrastructure that's the problem here. <laughs> it's a lot of times it's the apps that can't deprovision well. So, all right, can horizontal pod autoscaler trigger Carpenter? Yes, and I think there's already an answer. So if HPA... So the horizontal pod autoscaler is looking at the resources being used by a pod or a collection of pods and creating more pods of that type based off of that, right? So it's scaling out number of pods for that. HPA can trigger Carpenter because if HPA starts to say, I need a hundred more of this pod and there's not space for a hundred more, then it's just like the, what I showed in a demo, Carpenter is going to provision more nodes for that HPA scaling event. Right. So indirectly it does, yep. but there it doesn't need to connect to that API or whatever because of the scheduler and the fact that the, the Kubernetes right. scheduler is handling this itself. Right. So the and that's symb- a, a symbiotic yeah. relationship, right? And and I, and that's a good point. If you're going to do node auto scaling, you're probably at the level of someone who's probably considering horizontal and possibly even vertical pod auto scaling as well because right. Carpenter only solves part of the equation, like you explained earlier. So if documentation for adding functionality to Carpenter for other types of Kubernetes environments. So the question is, are there developer specs and documentation for people to be able to, is it in the docs basically? Yes. Yeah. So there's, I would say, go to the GitHub for Carpenter. I would suggest you go there. There is documentation and specs, and then also join the Carpenter Slack channel on the Kubernetes Slack. Yes. So ask in Slack or ask Nermal on his little Twitter handle there. If you, in case you can't find it, he'll yeah. answer you later. I'll help you, I'll help you find that. The question here was, how does it determine which instance size to pick? That's, it, it basically right sizes, it batches, it does all those things. How does it pick the, the instance size? I talked about it a little bit briefly, but it hits the, what's called the EC2 fleet API, sends an array back of instance types that best match the resource requests that you send that API. So. There's a awesome API that it, that Carpenter uses to figure out what the right instance size is on top yeah. of taints tolerations, labels, and all the other things, right? So it kind of follows the same pattern as, not the same pattern, but kind of matches the pattern over the pod scheduler, which has two steps, right? Filtering and, and scoring. It's kind of like that, if you will, right? So it filters what options are there based on the API call, and then it picks the right size one that best matches the resources. All right. A similar question, does Carpenter respect the desire to spread workloads across AZs? It can. So you can specify different availability zones. There's affinity, anti-affinity patterns that it's going to, you know, if you put that on a pod, a deployment spec, it's going to, it's going to follow all that stuff. So yes, you can. I think we're just at the beginning stages of the really cool architectural patterns that one can do with this kind of tool. <laughs> right. Rather than having to solve it with their own custom automation or right. wrappers, you can just 
define it in the spec and hopefully it will be flexible enough for all the edge cases. All right. EKS Anywhere asking again about EKS Anywhere support. No. So yeah, EKSA doesn't support auto scaling yet. So for that, we recommend using, you know, infrastructure's code techniques to scale out your infrastructure, like, you know, Terraform or GitOps or, you know, probably GitOps. So GitOps is probably the best way to do EKSA. And last question, how do you pick AMIs? Is that part of the... Uh... Yeah, so that's part of the provisioner. You can specify, you know, the AMI that you want. You can also do Bottle Rocket, which we encourage folks to use. Bottle Rocket is a awesome, optimized, very performant operating system, if you will, an AMI that's really great for running Kubernetes workloads. And so that can be provisioned. It could provision your custom AMIs, things like that. Yeah, I will make this last comment. I've been using Carpenter in production with spot instances and replaced node groups with it, saved almost 80% of our costs. So there you go. That sounds awesome. And that's that's the kind of things that we want people to use it for, right? We want to make sure that you know your experience using Kubernetes is right-sized and, and performant and available. Well, you heard it here, people. Carpenter, check it out if you're on AWS. If you're not on AWS with your Kubernetes cluster, you can still get involved with the project and help make it better, maybe for your cloud. And yep. I hope that this really catches on because I, I like automation and easy tools that aren't, there's not too much magic. And I love how you explained it. It's no. not replacing the scheduler. It's simply augmenting. It's doing things that are sort of exactly what Kubernetes add-ons or uh, controllers are designed to do to add this kind of functionality. It's not in any way hackish or, you know, these five steps are needed before this works. It seems like something is really easy to implement per Kubernetes standards. So, I, I mean, not that I give ratings on stuff. Maybe I should start doing that. You know how, like, I gave it three thumbs up or whatever. But this is the kind of tool that I would instantly want to look at and recommend my clients and customers that are on AWS, EKS, that kind of thing. So I look forward to hearing progress about this project because it it's still relatively new, right? Like I think I said it was I think it was less than a year ago it was announced. So it's great that it's got so much functionality out of the box already. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the future holds. And you're saying that one of the goals for this year on the roadmap, and it's cool that it has a roadmap, is super fast in really increasing the instant spin up time, which historically for Kubernetes in the cloud in general has always been a challenge. So I'm always excited to hear progress in that. Yeah. And feel free to to hit me up through the socials or, you know, other channels, uh, it's really easy to find me. So hit me up and let me know what questions you have. And if you like it, shoot me a note too. If you don't like it, let me know why. And also I put a link to our EKS newsletter. So if you want to keep up to date with EKS and Kubernetes coolness, subscribe to the newsletter. It comes out every week. Nice. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks again, Normal. See you all next week. Thank you so much, Brett. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.